Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. It's a good thing probably that you're here uh, for this global media debate. We're under the gaze of Lord Reef there, who was a pioneer. He started the World Service and BBC World News and, uh, and insisted on its independence from government. Uh, quite a far-sighted man. Um, obviously, this is also the scene of many a heated debate between the governors and management. In fact, one exasperated chairman once said that a decision in the BBC is a bloody start of a debate. Um, so that's a, you're in the right place to have a heated debate, I hope. And I hand you over to our host, Zaina Badawi. Good morning um, to all of you, or um, wakey-wakey to those of you like me more accustomed to um, operating a little later in the evening. Um, lovely to be with you all, and I hope that you'll find this morning's event um, stimulating and um, giving you some food to take away for thought, as well as the lovely, delicious breakfast we've had there. Um, we're going to be discussing the role of the globalised media in a global world to a global pandemic like um, the swine flu epidemic, but we have been here in the past, of course, just to quickly remind you some highlights. In 2002, of course, we had the SARS um, problem, and uh, people then were saying, oh, this is going to be worse than AIDS. Um, I think in the event, something like 775 people actually died worldwide. In 2006, we had bird flu, and I remember that in Britain, we had um, stories about, oh, one in four Britons might be affected by bird flu. I think in the event globally, something like 274 people died. And so there is always this question that when we come to deal with outbreaks like swine flu, what does the media do? What do policymakers do? How does industry respond? And I think that's the key link that we want to explore this morning, is the link between these three players. Does the media take responsibility for scaremongering, or are we simply just reflecting what's being said in the, um, in the arena, in the public arena, by the policymakers, the politicians, as well as the medical um, experts? And I'll just give you a quick rundown of, of the, the months that um, I've been working throughout this swine flu outbreak and perhaps some of the, um, the kind of angles that we've had um, to cover. I think we were very aware at the beginning at the BBC that we shouldn't really indulge in any kind of scaremongering and we took that decision that we wouldn't generate panic in any way. And so if you notice that a lot of our early reports were done by medical correspondents, for instance, and um, we very much just reflected what world bodies like the World Health Organization were saying. And I think world bodies like the WHO were very, very um, keen to make sure that they weren't caught sort of napping at the wheel. And so they used to give us an awful lot of um, press conferences at their headquarters in Geneva, and we would carry those on our 24-hour news stations. So should we have done that? Should we have not? Because in, in covering these uh, press conferences, of course, it gave a great deal of emphasis to a story in the very early stages. At the beginning, I think everybody was feeling a bit in the dark. We in the media were very much sort of grappling with what is this story about. There was suspicion that the Mexican government was downplaying the outbreak in Mexico because it didn't want any impact on its tourism and its economy. There was confusion about whether people should be given masks or not. There was even confusion. I remember interviewing EU commissioners and ministers and health experts, and there didn't seem to be one coherent view. You know, does Tamiflu work? Will a vaccine work? And so on. And then we had other angles in the media about British school children going off to France and um, being treated like criminals because 
there was, you know, quite a few outbreaks of swine flu in Britain. And then, of course, the Chinese worried about their slow response to SARS. They, remember, trapped all those poor, unfortunate tourists in the hotel because um, one of them seemed to show that they had swine flu. So it's a story that, in a sense, had many angles. And, and the fact that we were feeling in the dark, in a sense, almost became an angle in itself. So I, I'm very keen to hear what's going to be said um, today as somebody who's in the media to just see how the media should respond um, to some such outbreaks. And we've got a wonderful panel lined up who are going to be sharing um, their thoughts with you. They're each going to speak for a few minutes, and then after that, um, there'll be an opportunity for all of you to um, give us some questions. And if you uh, want to direct your question to one particular person in the panel, then please do so. And if I can just remind you at this moment that when you do speak, if you could stand up, introduce yourself, identify your organisation if it's relevant, and uh, then make your point. Okay, so we're going to start with our first speaker, who is Simon Jenkins. Simon, good morning. Nice to see you. Yeah, that's all right. Actually, perfect timing. You just um, arrived in time. Good. And uh, I just tell you a little bit about Simon Jenkins, although, of course, most of you know who he is. He is one of the best-known and most provocative journalists here in Britain. He delights in not swimming with the tide. You always, you always have a refreshing and rather unusual take um, on the big stories of the day, Simon. And as well as previously editing the Times newspaper and the Evening Standard, he writes a regular column in the uh, Guardian and in the Standard. Last year, he was appointed chairman of the National Trust, and he's the author of several books, including a very good one which I read, Sons of Thatcher, about the Margaret Thatcher legacy. Now, Simon, I get the feeling that you feel that when it comes to swine flu, there's been a fair dose of scaremongering. Is that right? Yes. You'd have to tell us why. So, Simon, please, the floor is yours. Okay. Um, I, think, I think one of the problems is that we're dealing not with a normal story when you're dealing with um, disease. Um, it's a bit like national security and crime. Um, you're dealing with information that goes absolutely right to the heart of people's sense of personal security. Um, you're dealing with their fear of death. Uh, it's an absolute gift to journalism. It brings out the worst in us. And um, we are swift to allow the worst to come out of us uh, at moments like that. Um, it's rather like nuclear holocaust in the old days. Um, it, it is a moment when um, your juices run. Uh, you suddenly think, hooray, I can use the word um, massacre, plague, um, millions may die. Uh, all these cliches of sensationalism uh, are applicable when you're dealing with a disease. Um, I wish it wasn't so. Uh, I must say, when I read, news, when I read newspapers, whenever uh, these more or less annual uh, flu scares come round, um, my heart sinks because I know that the profession of which I'm a member is going to be at its very worst for the next two weeks. Um, what shocked me, um, sorry, what shocks me, uh, present tense, about the way in which um, these stories are handled by those in a sense of a position of responsibility, and I'm not in any sense... Um, uh, detracting from the responsibility that lies with the press is the way in which the authorities handle them. The authorities play to the worst aspects of the press's behaviour. Uh, and this swine flu, which paralleled previous um, similar uh, pandemics, pandemic is so much more glamorous a word than epidemic, um, is that the, um, the authorities in this case always publicised the most extreme um, uh, outlying statistic of risk. Um, they played to every single public fear. Uh, I thought they did so astonishingly. And I think this, to a certain extent, has to do with the individuals involved. Um, they they seem to me to love to see the headline, Millions May Die. 
um, the abuse by epidemiologists, who are supposedly statisticians, of words like could, might, uh, possibly, perhaps, um, always inserted into uh, the most tendentious possible statistic, um, was calculated to play, play on public fear. And you're dealing with the exploitation of public fear, very similar to what you tend to get in cases of crime and cases of uh, national security. Um, I simply feel there is an added responsibility on those who are democratically uh, placed in charge over us uh, to try and play down public fear, not exaggerate it. In the case of swine flu, I think almost, and I say almost, every single public um, pronouncement, uh, right up to and including the endless meetings of COBRA, um, I spoke to one minister who went to the meetings of COBRA on swine flu. I said, why don't you have COBRA meetings on flu? It's much more dangerous. Oh, but you haven't been to those meetings. The doctors are so impressive. They fill you with confidence. Uh, that's what shattered me. It was the idea that ministers um, are actually bamboozled uh, by medical people who have their own interests at stake in these matters. Uh, they're selling drugs. Uh, they're selling their jobs. They're building up their budgets. They're demanding swine flu vaccination centers, budgets, and so on. Um, every conceivable kind of chicanery is going on at a time like this, and we need to watch it and see what's happening. The reason for this is quite simple. It's that if we don't um, watch it at times like this, uh, when it happens again, uh, the principle of crying wolf will apply. I have no way of knowing when the chief medical officer of health tells me that I'm threatened with a uh, possible um, pandemic which may kill millions, if he's talking complete rubbish or not. Uh, I don't know whether I'm threatened by a real plague or a dud one again. Uh, and this is the point at which uh, I'll stop, <laughs> let the others speak, um, but sound what I think is a severe warning, because I think at this moment the press has a serious responsibility not to play uh, the game of the professionals. Thank you. Well, you've set the cat amongst the pigeons there, haven't you, Simon? Thank you very much indeed, Simon. Our second speaker is David Brennan. He's American. He's chief executive officer of AstraZeneca, and he's been instrumental in helping build it into a multi-billion dollar industry uh, business. David's been in the pharmaceutical industry for four decades, and in December 2007, he was appointed a commissioner of the UK Commission for Employment and Skills. Um, there's been a lot of confusion, uh, David, as to whether those infected with swine flu should take Tamiflu or not, that kind of thing. We hear governments are still stockpiling supplies of the drug. So um, I think you're going to be looking at um, really the collaboration between the players, industry, policymakers, public, and the media. Yeah, so. I think there's uh, it, it, certainly there's been uh, you know quite a bit of collaboration that's gone on. I think that uh, you know a number of other people here are much better uh, positioned to um, uh, talk about the, the the role of the media than I am, uh, and uh, you know I tend to be more of a participant and a consumer than a supplier, but. Um, I also know that conflict is part of what makes up a pretty good story. So, I, you know, I recognize the differences of opinion about um, uh, what's being said and how it's being interpreted by the public. I think that there has been um, a significant level of engagement between, the, you know, the most important parties. If you think about the um, uh, global and local health authorities, uh, governments, uh, industry, uh, both the pharmaceutical industry in terms of our role uh, in bringing forward antivirals and vaccines, but also amongst industry in preparation, uh, because industry has a role to play in uh, just in preparing people for, if it should happen, uh, what exactly uh, needs to be done. I think there's been, as you all know, an awful lot of reporting. Some of it has been sensationalized. 
I think the um, when the UK uh, call center went online and was just flooded and overflowed with calls and couldn't keep up, there was, you know, again some I think uh, recognition that you know it was uh, people were seeking uh, lots more information than, than was probably available. But generally, I think there's been a relative lack of panic. I'm not. Uh, uh, it's not been my observation. Haven't you know? I travel quite a bit um, and have traveled uh, over this period of time around the world. I've sat on the plane in Japan when they they wouldn't let us off and came on with the, you know, all the garb on the um, uh, and and checked everybody with the, the temperature sensors to see whether or not you you had a anybody had a fever. And if they did, they they took everybody off into another room and decided whether to quarantine them or not. You know, I, you know, that's at one level, and I have to say I was absolutely surprised when it happened, but it's an example of where governments, I think, for a while, uh, for whatever reason, chose to do that. Um, I think, that, you know, to date, the virus has been less virulent than is feared. Uh, there has been an increase in cases reported, but it's bouncing around. I think, you know, the southern hemisphere uh, is coming out of the flu season now, and the curves are getting somewhere back to normal without... Um, an outrageous, you know, increase in overall numbers of cases or deaths. Uh, Simon said there are a lot more deaths from flu than there are from swine flu reported so far. Uh, I think one of the outcomes of what has been reported is that the world is better prepared than ever should something happen. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the idea that a pandemic hasn't been uh, announced by the World Health Organization since, I believe, the early 1970s suggests that uh, it's not one where there are frequent calls to uh, prepare for something that doesn't actually happen. And, you know, I, because of the role I play in some uh, policy issues, I, I interact with Margaret Chan at the World Health Organization. I saw her a couple of weeks ago and got into a discussion with her about whether or not declaring the pandemic and it not happening, in fact, um, compromises the um, uh, the reputation and the willingness of people to listen to, to WHO when they do declare it. And, you know, she obviously has a very, very strong position that that's not the case, that, you know, they took their time in moving up to level six on this pandemic, and it was based on facts, it was based on spread of disease reports, and, uh, you know, that, that they have an obligation to do that when they see it that way. So, um, I do think, you know, the industry has a, a role to play. Our industry has invested uh, billions of dollars in vaccine technology. Our company is involved in vaccine technology. We are trying to make a swine flu vaccine. Uh, we are, you know, engaged with the governments about um, our ability to do that and our ability to supply. You know, the industry um, operates uh, with at-risk capital. So if you take a look at what's available right now to deal with flu, including swine flu. You basically, you have two antivirals that are available from two different pharmaceutical companies who develop those with at-risk capital. They didn't come from the government. You know, they don't come from academia. These are developed by, by industry. Uh, and if the vaccines are successfully made, and it looks like they will be, uh, then um, you'll, you'll have another example of where uh, industry you know, again, takes the role based on interactions with government, with health authorities, with the WHO, to try to do something about this. Uh, so, you know, that's why I believe, as, as uh, was said in the introduction, the collaboration, I think, is very, very important. There, I believe there are some pretty well-thought-out plans uh, that, um, you know, will allow, should this really pick up significantly, action to be taken, if it were to be uh, an extremely bad situation. There is not enough vaccine. Vaccine is the best 
uh, way to prevent uh, this, you know, if, if we can get it. But there, there won't be enough vaccine, and if it comes, it won't be available soon enough uh, to, to deal with a broad, uh, a real pandemic if it spreads. Uh, I wouldn't pretend that there's complete agreement between governments and local authorities uh, and companies, but, you know, I think the collaboration has been good uh, because I think the intent that people have about trying to do something and be as well prepared as is possible is probably the principle that underlies why, um, you know, there has been so much uh, that's been done. And I would say, you know, the and, you know, in a moment um, we'll hear from Peter. I, you know, the scientific community is speaking up on this. I think that's good. I think there's uh, very good scientific information. Uh, you know, I think the, the media has a responsibility to try to, um, to make that understandable. The Science Media Center here in the, in the U.K., which, um, uh, you know, we support, I think, you know, as I understand it and have seen, I think does a good job in kind of trying to translate some of that science into understanding what the implications of it really are. Uh, and build some bridges, I think, between the science community and, and journalists and the media. Um, so, I, you know, there, I believe there's a duty to probe on the part of journalists and to, and to question and to push. Um, uh, agree with Simon that I think the, um, you know, but there's a responsibility to try to present it in a balanced way that, that uh, um, you know, demonstrates as, as best we can what's really going on. I know that doesn't necessarily play to the sensationalization uh, that sometimes seems more exciting to some than to others. But, I, you know, I think there's been a relatively mature response to this uh, in the aggregate when you look across all the people who need to collaborate. And I think we're better prepared for this than certainly we were for um, the avian flu or some things that preceded it. So I think I'll stop there. Thanks very much indeed, David. Thank you. Our next speaker is Paola Totaro. Is that good? You like my Italian accent? Don't speak a word of Italian, but never mind. You are the Europe correspondent based here in London for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Work that one out. She covers political and social issues in Britain and the rest of Europe. And Paola, as you can guess, was born in Italy, but um, has a long-standing passion for Australia, hence the connection with the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, you've done some of the most senior jobs on the Herald, Paola, leading the education and urban affairs team. And Paola, you're going to be looking at how the media has kind of been covering this uh, swine flu outbreak. Indeed I am, and it's an interesting opportunity because I think in a globalised media environment this is one case where there's been quite significant um, differences between coverage here that I've watched and in Australia. Um, my observation began a couple of months ago, well, four months ago now, in May when the Antipodean winter set in and Australia started reporting the first cases of swine flu when I got a text message from my younger brother in Sydney and it was shortened to the point, and it said, and I quote, get your reporters to talk to the health department, tell them to ask questions about the intensive care units. We're all full, and there's some very ill, young, healthy adults here. Um, my brother's an intensivist, and he's a senior staff specialist at Sydney's biggest teaching hospital, Royal Prince Alfred, and he's monosyllabic at the best of times. Um, a talent for chit-chat's probably less needed when most of your patients are unconscious. Um, so I was really taken aback by the, um, the urgent tone of this SNS and so, you know, for once this guy who's quite a caustic media critic seemed to be implying that the press was actually undercooking the story. Um, so even though I was in London and covering Europe, not Australia, I rang him and the message was pretty clear. He and his ICU colleagues were becoming extremely anxious that the medicos that were being quoted in the media in Australia and who were also delivering important public health messages about swine flu 
were not working at the coalface with the people that were becoming really, really sick. And worse still, the early patterns and epidemiological information that was emerging, and he mentioned, and this is very early because the first case was, was confirmed in May 9, he mentioned the threat to pregnant women in particular and in Australia that, you know, that, that we just we didn't know that. And, and felt that those critical messages were simply not being re well reported. Um, I rang my medical colleagues at the Herald and they underscored the point and basically said that the experts that they had been given um, and, and, or that they were able to, to get permission to talk to publicly were limited and they're all desperate for information. Um, I was in London and uh, I watched the coverage more as a consumer and as an occasional reporter, and I felt completely the opposite. Um, every day the headlines were jumping out at me. Um, I mean, I remember the Daily Mail's 32 million masks, the picture of the, the surgical masks. It was actually quite scary, and I'm not a kind of naturally panicky person. Um, but as a ch person who has to travel for a living and mother of a young child, it was, you know, it, it increased anxiety and fear. Um, and Yet, when I actually checked out the public information infrastructure, I checked phone lines, I talked to local GP, chemists, school responses, everything in Britain seemed to be working in a very orderly and reassuring way, but what I was getting as the consumer wasn't, didn't feel that way. So I guess it, it brings us to the point that, um, you know, we have to question, we know that it, an outbreak of any new infectious disease creates dilemmas for the media here, over there. Um, as RPA's, as the Royal Prince Alfred's um, intensive care director, Dr. Robert Herkey, said to me in an email exchange about this, the swine flu is a particularly tricky one when it comes to editorial decisions. And I quote him direct. He says, here is a disease with all sorts of experts in epidemiology, infectious diseases and public health, this is in Australia, putting out soothing messages about the flu being no worse than any other year and essentially causing grave illness or killing only those with chronic underlying disease, bracket subscript, they were going to die anyway, still quoting, and yet there's another group of experts in other fields, such as his people in ICU, who are con contradicting that message by saying that the, death, the, the disease is life-threatening to some normal young people um, who, you know, who, who were subsequently placed on external oxygen therapies and, as in the case happened in Scotland, we had to be flown to, to Sweden. Um, the Australian data actually um, highlights these contradictions that we have to deal with in the media. Um, the most obvious is that the emergency department presentations with flu-like symptoms are at record levels, as are admissions with flu to in intensive care. Um, as of yesterday in Australia, there are 60 in ICU, there are 315 in hospital, it's 171 dead and um, 36,100 and something cases, and that's in a population of just under 20 million. Um, at the same time, absenteeism from work is the same as any other year. And in Australia, as here, I think, there are some equally curious um, patterns where we see that different parts of the country are showing different responses. In coastal areas of New South Wales, for example, they're much lower. Is it the sea breeze? Well, we don't really know. These are all questions that we have to you know, tr try and filter and, and make people understand as, as media people. So if you accept then that there are huge contradictions, um, what happens then if both groups of experts, the doomsayers and the Pollyannas, are, might be correct? Um, 
looking back, and Australia's coming out of winter now, so it's the, the worst we hope is over, but I think most people are pretty proud of the outcome, so far at least. Um, in the days that followed that email, um, and I, I watched in the back room as some of the specialists, the ICU people throughout Sydney and other capital cities um, actually asked for asked the health department to allow them to lift the usual bureaucratic bans on them talking to reporters, and a kind of new information model was uh, or model of dissemination was set in train. Effectively, reporters were allowed to talk to specialists without the usual PR filters, which was really um, a, a good outcome, I suppose, for journalism and and the specialists at the coalface. And so, to wrap up, I guess, I was, I was pleased to, re, to, to get this information because it gave me an opportunity to actually go back um, in the last couple of weeks and to talk to those people, to, to the specialists as well as the, as the reporters, to find out how they felt about the, the media coverage now that the winter's over. And interestingly, both sides felt, um, well, perhaps <laughs> less surprisingly, the press, um, the, the, they felt that the, the press in Australia had, and I quote, um, played a fairly straight bat. They stood by their initial assessments and were pretty cranky about responses at the beginning of the crisis. Um, in Australia, for example, there was one cruise ship that was where people were held and weren't allowed off, and then it turned out there was nobody exposed, and so they were hugely pilloried by the press, and then there was another cruise ship where people were let off, people were found to have been exposed, and there was huge criticism in the press for them too. Um, but the, 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 ultimate, um, the ultimate response seemed to be that, um, that in Australia we, quote, certainly, as far as I can tell, they said there were no headlines likely to spread fear and panic, a tactic which could easily have been employed. And so I think experts working together, a bit, a bit more communication, lifting some of the, the old sort of school rules have been a quite, quite a good thing. Um, for my part, as a former editor as well as a reporter, um, it seems to me there are a couple of messages. One is that it's important to remind people that at times of crisis, we, the media, are off, suddenly placed in a situation in which the government expect us to be behave as their PR wing, um, and we're not. Um, we need to separate reporting from being the conduit of public health messages. If we worry too much about whether we're going to cause alarm, it'll hobble reporting. So the aim is to report the facts as they emerge, but we can't be responsible for crowd control. Um, that's the government's role. Um, I think we, in Australia we reported both sides fairly well, and, um, and as the ICU people pointed out, in the end intensive care units in Australia were running at double their usual capacity, um, and similar problems have happened here. It wouldn't have been seen as a beat-up if they were full of train crash victims, and I guess it's, I don't think it's a, a beat-up if they're mortally ill due to, due to flu. Paula, thank you very much indeed with that perspective from how the um, swine flu story has been covered from the other side of the world. And our next speaker is Professor Peter Openshaw, um, who's director of the Centre for Respiratory Infection, that's the CRI, at the National Heart and Lung Institute at the Imperial College here in London. A medical doctor, is that right? Correct, yes. yes. I feel very safe now. He trained at Guy's Hospital and has extensive experience in immunology and currently serves on the Immunology and Infectious Diseases Panel. Very distinguished career, serving on many other national and international bodies. And uh, Peter Openshaw is going to be looking at the role of the media in reflecting the response of the scientific and medical community. 
Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's great to be here and great to be with so many people who know so much about the media. I think um, my um, interest in, in talking to the media really started, I suppose, when we had the great MMR debacle some years ago. And it really struck me that as, as somebody who's trying to promote public health, you have to understand how that sort of event um, played out. You know, how was it that um, such an extreme minority view really grabbed the headlines and um, caused such a, a big impact on, on public health? And I guess another turning point for me was when I was at a conference um, of people who were mainly vaccinologists and... Clive Cookson took the stage and he gave a most inspiring um, presentation, really opening my eyes to the way in which um, a media story is, um, is, is constructed. You know, what is a journalist looking for? And I was really quite unaware that journalists were look, looking for something quite different from what we scientists were looking for when we, when we looked at the story. I actually met him at a, um, at a, at a supper party a few weeks later and I was telling him this story about how I'd, I'd seen this inspiring person up on the stage in, in Switzerland, and he said, I am Clive Cookson. I didn't recognize him. <laughs> so um, so I, I think that, that um, those events really, really um, made me think that we have to be available. We have to use the media. We have to understand the way in which the media operate if we are to get good public health messages out. And I think there has been a really uh, remarkable improvement in much of the reporting, particularly much of the reporting which is done by professional science journalists rather than uh, people who are good with words and are doing a bit of uh, pumping up of the message in, in their spare time. I think the professionalization of science journalism is something which we really have to defend. It's a, it's a fragile improvement. It's, progress is, is delicate. In, in this age of cuts, I think we must make sure that the professional science journalists are, um, are preserved and protected. I think there's still a lot to do, and there's still a lot to do, particularly in terms of educating not only the public, but also other health professionals. I was struck recently talking to some um, nurses that we've hired to actually do some studies on, um, on H1N109, um, and I was asking them, you know, would they have the vaccine? Would they recommend the vaccine? And they said, absolutely not. It might give me flu. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the fact that 40, only 40% of health professionals actually get vaccinated against seasonal flu is scandalous. I can't understand why we should be so cavalier in our approach to the protection of our patients. We know that um, health professionals are vectors of, of influenza. Even if you don't get it badly, you're still sneezing over a lot of sick people. And I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a duty to our patients to be vaccinated. I'm slightly going off on a tangent here, but I think that we need to educate people and we need to persuade people um, of the importance of, um, of trying to be aware and protect. Um, I think that Liam Donaldson um, has actually done a remarkably good job in the way in which he's brought information out to the public. He's giving these regular briefings which present the true facts as they um, unfold. He's not trying to um, um, play any game. He's not trying to um, pump up the situation. He's trying to present the facts. And I think he's doing that in, in an honest way, the facts as we see them at the time, and being very sensible and reasonable. If I can just read from his um, press briefing yesterday, he said that there's been 
a small increase in the number of GP consultations. Um, the National Pandemic Flu Service shows a small increase in completed self-care um, referrals and overall the levels remain low but this increase in activity may indicate a start in the winter upturn. And then on the, <clears throat> on the front of yesterday's evening standard, swine flu soars. And this was a report of, of what Sir Liam um, said in his press briefing. I mean, so where's this small increase that he was referring to? Clearly, this was not an example of um, a professional playing a game and trying to pump things up. It, I mean, what it, what it seems to be is that some quite good science writer has produced a story, and then the headline writer has chosen this word, soars, instead of um, the small increase, which was the original source. So I think that... Um, <laughs> yes, I think that... Millions could die. Millions, millions <laughs> could die. Now, I think there's, uh, my, the last thing I wanted to say is that on the various planning committees, um, the, the epidemiologists, the statisticians have to work out what is the, what is the reasonable worst-case worst scenario in order to plan for the public health response. Now, that's a reasonable worst-case scenario. Now, those figures are useful and essential for planning our response, but they're not actually what we really think is going to happen. The reasonable middle-case scenario is usually smaller than the worst-case scenario, but time and again, the worst-case scenario is the, is, the, is the one which is chosen and is then um, put in the headline. And I think that, that um, it's really important to try to emphasize that the worst-case scenario is, um, is, is, not, is, is essential but not, not actually what, um, what we think is, is going to happen. And it's very easy for people like Jeremy Paxman, as he did on Newsnight, to put together you know, a, a reasonable worst-case scenario of how many cases of flu we're going to have, together with a new um, report of, say, 1% mortality, in hospital and to multiply those figures together and to present this we're all going to die message which is what 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 happened and that isn't us trying to pump things up we don't need to pump things up we don't want to pump things up um, we want a reasonable message to get out there and that's I think what we're trying to do thank you thank you very much indeed Peter and um, last but not least Catherine Mayer Catherine May was born in the United States, but she doesn't sound American, as you'll hear in a moment, because she's lived in London for a while. She's the London bureau chief for Time magazine, but actually she covers all of the UK and Ireland as well as Germany. Before that, Catherine worked as a senior editor for Time Europe, Middle East and Africa, so she's worked in the past as a foreign correspondent uh, reporting from um, Europe and Southeast Asia. So she's got really good global experience. She also worked on the Commission for Africa, you know, that one that was set up by Tony Blair. And so um, she'll be bringing us um, a kind of global perspective in her comments, but fo focusing specifically on um, the media in its role as kind of disseminator of information as well as perhaps its vulnerabilities to sensationalism. Catherine. Yes, well, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to turn this into a plug for Time magazine, but there were two very useful um, pieces in the issue that's just about to hit the newsstand. So uh, I printed them out and brought them with me and just want to read some quotes from them because what I think is very helpful is if we get a sense of 
the kinds of conditions that the media is operating under at the moment and why the kind of good reporting that Peter described is also under threat from the uh, wider pressures affecting the media. Um, now, the, the first piece I want to quote from is not obviously germane. It's a profile of the, the new darling of the right wing in America, um, the, the um, broadcaster Glenn Beck. Um, but uh, I think the, the quotes give you a very good sense of, of the pressures that media is operating under. It is Beck, nervous, beset, desperate, who now channels the mood of many on the right. I'm afraid, he has said more than once in recent months, you should be afraid too. His fears are many, which is lucky for him because Beck is responsible for filling multiple hours each day on radio and TV and webcast, plus hundreds of pages each year in his books, his online magazine and his newsletter. Now, Beck actually uh, told us last year, um, he talked about, we've got to pull together, we're facing dark times. Unless we trust each other, we're not going to make it. And the author of this week's article comments, how can we trust each other, though, when the integrated economy of ranters and their delighted-to-be-outraged critics are such a model of profitability? A microphone, a camera, and a polarizing host are all it takes to get the money moving. Because audiences have been so widely fragmented by the new technology, ratings that would have gotten a talk show host cancelled in the late 1980s create a superstar today. Extreme talk, especially as practiced by genuine talent like Beck, squeezes maximum profit from a relatively small, deeply invested audience. Um, I mean, I won't, I won't continue with the quote, but basically that issue about the fracturing of the, the media, of our audiences, um, in different ways affecting the print media mean that we're all operating under um, increasing um, and very brutal commercial pressures. Um, that's, I suspect, not news to many people in this room. Um, but this is happening at a time when the resources to do the reports, the reporting, are being um, constantly squeezed and where the battle that is being faced on reporting swine flu and dealing with swine flu is psychological um, as much as it is medical. Um, and obviously, I mean, Simon and Peter both mentioned some of the more egregious examples of, of um, swine flu reporting. I, I printed out just a few. I, um, the Express has been particularly uh, um, creative, shall we say. Um, but um, it's also, it starts at a very basic level. Here's a vignette from a, another piece. <laughs> As I say, sorry, plug about plugging time here. 18-year-old um, Hayden Henshaw from Texas, who was one of the early uh, swine flu cases. Um, early on, the family agreed to do a local TV news interview to show that they were just a normal family with the virus, as Patrick, the father of the family, put it. Then the national shows started calling. What was it like when you find, found out you had swine flu, a CNN anchor asked Hayden. He replied in a teenager's deadpan, I mean, it's just the flu. I went through it normally. Producers then asked the family to wear face masks on camera, even though health officials had told them that wasn't necessary. Um, the, I mean, Simon, Simon talked about the, the um, problem of the health authorities themselves and the, the use of statistics there. And there's an interesting case because the president's own council in America came out with something where they, they talked about uh, a scenario which they described as a possibility, not a prediction, um, 
of uh, 3,000 to 9, uh, sorry, 30,000, try again, to 90,000 H1N1 deaths. That was instantly reported in America um, as a prediction, as a firm prediction. So you do have a problem that they caveated it very carefully, um, but because that range of statistics was in there, and of course a lot of people just quoted the 90,000. Um, the, um, obviously this is completely irresponsible journalism, it's ignorant journalism. Um, as I mentioned, all of us are operating with fewer resources. Um, it doesn't excuse any of this, but it does mean that, that it makes it even more difficult to give these things the kind of coverage and the kind of sober, responsible coverage you want. But I think it's also wrong to see media as an entity that operates that are removed from um, society. And um, we also cannot be expected to make up for deficiencies in public health messaging. Um, I strongly second what Paola said, um, that, that the media is also not simply a conduit for uh, public health messaging. And if we've learned anything, it's that you can't trust always government or public health bodies to get it right. So obviously our job is, is not just to accept and to um, transmit, but to question and to try and understand and maybe ask questions that people haven't asked. Now there are direct analogies with reporting this sort of thing, um, with, with the reporting of stories like Northern Rock, um, where people also said actually you know, maybe it would have been best not to report this at all. Maybe the run on the bank was created by, by Robert Peston. Um, you know, you, that you cannot think like that as a journalism. Um, people, swine flu is clearly a serious issue. People can't make rational decisions without knowledge. Um, we as journalists have a duty to find out as much as we can and tell people in as responsible way as we can. But we cannot write informative pieces without information. Um, nice quote from uh, Sandra Galea of the Center for Global Health at the University of Michigan. Knowledge has to flow centrally. Absent that, you will have a flow of mythologies. Um, now, I used to be very active in the Foreign Press Association here in London. And um, at a time when uh, the Blair government was in and the, the Blair government's um, romance with the populist elements of the British press was such that you had a better chance of getting a callback and the ministries all became politicized. And you had a better chance of getting a callback on a story if you were from Take a Break or Woman's Own than if you were from a serious foreign, language, uh, foreign news organization. Um, at that time, foot and mouth happened. You could not get anything as foreign press out of um, the Department of Health, out of the, um, I think it was MAF at the time, it keeps changing names, but, um, and it was a real issue. What happened, of course, is that even responsible journalists, when they can't get to source material, you can't just ring your, your head office and say, uh, sorry, I can't report because they're not telling me. So you get thrown onto rewriting the British media which, um, you know, as we've seen from some of the bad examples of reporting, is, is never a good idea. And of course, these stories emerged about Britain being under this pool of smoke from the fires. And then tourism immediately started plunging. Now, foot and mouth was never, in that sense, a, a big public health danger. But nevertheless, if you look at, at 
how we were restricted in the reporting of it, how difficult it was to report it well. You understand how important it is that public health bodies and governments really, really do give, I think, full information um, and, and possibly foolishly, from what Simon was saying, trust us to deal with it responsibly. Um, I think Australia's response, um, removing the PR filter, is one of the, the better ones that I've heard of, and very, very rare. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine. So they're the views of our panel, and um, while you're working out what you might want to um, ask them, just I should just try and seek a little bit of clarity for myself here. Now, Peter Openshaw. Um, four journalists I know on the panel, including me, so I don't feel like I really want to gang up on you. However, Simon said at the beginning that the authorities publicised the most extreme aspects of outbreaks like swine flu. Isn't that right, Simon? But you said, Peter, that it's the media that picks on the most extreme scenarios and chooses to give sensationalist headlines like the one in the Evening Standard. So you can't both be right, can you? I'm absolutely convinced that the message that we try to give out is not only the most extreme scenario, but also the the most likely scenario, and sometimes a a calming scenario, because we're not certain enough about the likely scenario, even if it it is a a prediction which is based on firm evidence. I, I don't see how we could be doing it better. I can't think of many colleagues that I would think are trying to put out any sort of sensationalist message. And I certainly don't think we're playing a game amongst us professionals in order to try to um, increase our science funding or whatever. I I do not recognize that scenario. We're quite busy enough. We've got other things to get on with. We don't really want to pump this up. And we know that if we do, we're going to fall flat on our faces. Simon? Well, you fall flat on your face. You got it wrong. I mean, Liam Donaldson has hyped every single flu scare for the past five years. I followed them all. SARS, bird flu, uh, swine flu. He always uses words like millions could die. What does millions could die mean from a doctor? I mean, it's outrageous behavior. And if you tell me that Liam Donaldson doesn't want to increase his budget, I just don't believe you. Um, These people are playing a very sophisticated Whitehall game. Um, He wanted a swine flu center set up. He got it set up. He got it set up by scaring the public whitlers, uh, by playing on the natural inclination of a journalist. If he's told millions could die, you don't say hundreds could die. You say millions could die, says a government uh, official. That's exactly what happened. Um, He said millions were going to die of SARS. Um, He said millions are going to die possibly of SARS. Um, He always relies on his his, uh, wonderfully statistical adverbs. But, um, but this is irresponsible behavior to me. He's playing on public fear for the purpose of, in his case, I think, self-aggrandizement. I think he's behaved outrageously, and I think there should be a public inquiry into it. People, <laughs> died, people died in surgeries because they weren't allowed in. My surgery had to put up on the outside of the door. If you've got swine flu, don't come in. I mean, people were diverting resources in hospitals. I've spoken to doctors about this mm. in order to cater for the possibility that there might be an epidemic of this. Of this but Simon, are you not being too hard? Because, I mean, if people like Liam Donaldson didn't try to publicise this and there were supposedly some unavoidable deaths in the future, you know everybody would be down on him like a tonne of bricks, including the media. I, I'm not interested in everyone coming down on tonnes of bricks. They have a responsibility to say what they, they believe to be the facts, not wild assertions of possible predictions. I'm, 
can I respond? Of course I, you may. I really, I, I, do, I do not recognise this um, description of Liam Donaldson. I mean, I think he's he's a quietly spoken, modest man in a in a in a difficult situation. He is presented with scenarios by the computer modellers who actually are really more interested in the numbers than in the human story. And they give him these scenarios that they've, that they've played out on their computers um, with complete objectivity. And he has to see how he's going to portray it. And I think, you know, small increase, re levels remain low, turning into, you know, <laughs> cases sore. You know, Sir Liam is not trying to pump this up. But he has said there are going to be five thousand. There were five thousand more cases this week than last week, and five thousand sounds like quite a lot, doesn't it? But but if you look at the confidence interval, I don't want to get too technical here. But the but the but the confidence interval on on the on those numbers is is actually quite wide. It's about plus or minus thirty or forty percent. So the you know he he has to report what he sees as the facts and he's trying to report things straight and then it gets taken on by somebody who alliterates and is good with words. He makes predictions. Um, he uh, makes predictions. Yeah, well, everybody does that in science. I mean, climate change and all that. But I'm sure, as you said, Peter, that Liam Donaldson, you know, it's not perhaps seeking self-aggrandizement, as you said, Simon. We've no evidence for that. But um, very quickly, before I ask... Talk to Ministry of Health officials. Oh, well, yeah. Do, do come in here, Catherine. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I think one of the problems is that we haven't clarified what it is we think that public health officials need to be doing, and I think that's partly because they themselves don't know. Because on the one hand, you want people to take this seriously, and on the other hand, you don't want them to overreact. Um, you have the problem with the hyping that you get the effect you talked about of the boy who cried wolf, that people become actually immune to it. If you tell people don't panic, that almost invariably makes them panic. Um, and the real problem is that people don't know how this is going to evolve, and they also don't know what the best strategies are for coping with it. They know for sure. They'll take the most extreme word they use, if it's tens of millions, they will use tens of millions. They know that's going to happen. Yes, but they aren't foolish. But, these what's, but what's, your, what's your suggestion that, that what people that people should things. sit on should sit on information altogether? Yeah, the facts. Yeah, but people, millions, thousands of people weren't about to die. The 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 president's the White House report that I referred mm. to is incredibly soberly phrased. It was not phrased mm. in terms of you know this many people are going to die. It said, you know, at the worst end of the spectrum, you may have this many people affected. So you're saying but the media hasn't generated panic? And no, I'm saying that in that case, the media, that, you know, the USA uh, Today immediately ran a headline saying um, 90,000 people uh, may die. From, from 90,000 people as the upper limit of the All people right. who might be affected. Paula? Part of the problem, and perhaps fast-tracking some of the scientific um, information or articles could help, I mean, there's a problem because there's a lag between raw, casual, uh, raw casualty data and the, the analysed scientific information that comes through in the scientific um, and medical journals. I mean, is there a way of... I mean, isn't that, that, that's probably not helping. Is there a way of kind of shortening that time, I wonder? Is that to Peter? Yeah. Peter. I think in terms of trying to get the, the accurate scientific message out, it, it has to go through the, 
the normal processes of publication. It has to go out to peer review. It has to, you know, be it has to come out and then, um, you know, be be released at the time when it when it's um, published in scientific journals. I think that is the best safeguard of of scientific. Um, veracity. Well, it's interesting because in Australia they've now um, the, the two major journals have actually um, have fast tracked that peer pressure or, or that peer review specifically to try and get information out quicker. So wouldn't yes. that help here in such a huge? I think I think so, but I think you do need proper consideration to be given, and I and I do worry that sometimes the um, some of the very high impact um, journals like the Lancet. Um, do almost verge on on taking a rather popular journalist approach of of, of seeking the headline. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, but there is the editors are doctors, aren't they? Yeah, there is so there is a, a slightly grey area. Here. Okay. All right. Before I go to the floor, David, is there anything you want to comment on what you've heard? Well, I, I, you know, in listening to it as a consumer of the media, I think people don't take uh, the the sensationalism when it happens as an absolute. I think they take it as a relative part of the input that they get around trying to decide what the, uh, what the implications of swine flu are. I go back to my point, which is, you know, I think generally the world is better prepared should something much more significant happen. That's, pro that's a good outcome. And there has been, you know, you can see, you know, all ends of the spectrum around the type of reporting that's been done. Uh, so we can pull extreme examples and use them, but I don't think that generally uh, reflects the... Um, uh, the the, uh, the aggregate of what of what has happened, and I just think from a business perspective, you've got companies that have thought, "What do I do? How do I run my business if 25% of my people get sick and aren't able to come to work?" I mean, you know, you can cascade it into a number of different ways that you'd say we're probably better off. There's going to be a vaccine available that didn't exist before. That's going to advance technologies in some way that we didn't expect. Yes, there are a lot of resources that get put behind it, but. Uh, not doing that is, you know, I, th I think is irresponsible given the potential risk. There's something going on. This is going to evolve and evolve. Okay, so that even when you get the sensations headlines, Peter, the public don't necessarily believe, you know, what they read and it hasn't necessarily generated panic. Let's hear what our floor says. I want to go first of all to if you could stand up, Dr. Vivian Nathanson, if you could introduce yourself and make your point. Uh, Vivian Nathanson from the British Medical Association, a physician. Uh, I'm on the government's flu planning groups. Um, I'm supposed to be there in about 20 minutes, but I'm, I've told them I'll be late this morning. Uh, and also the World Health Organization's ethics group. Um, and uh, Peter, um, I agree with almost everything you've said. I would just say just quickly that the British Medical Journal is now publishing online um, material very much more quickly with big caveats saying it hasn't yet been peer reviewed and inviting people to peer review it online, but particularly to try and get in the emerging information and as Paula said, one of the first things that became clear in the UK is that a number of the first hospitalised patients who were seriously ill were people were, were pregnant women, and it was an important message to get out. Uh, another piece of information that came out from the USA, and people weren't sure whether to take it seriously, and probably everybody will giggle, is that people who were morbidly obese were at higher risk. Um, and people then say, well, of course, that would be in the US. But it does seem to be a significant risk factor, and it's not one in, in other circumstances. So it's an interesting one that needs to be looked at. I think there's a, there are some key issues here, though. The first being that all the planning was done on H5N1, uh, not on the basis of the current avian flu, which can't be transmitted human to human, but on it modifying itself to a, f a form that had a high lethality, not the 50% of the current version, but maybe 25 or 5%. 
but was transmissible. Uh, and we've been very lucky. This particular pandemic, and technically it is a pandemic, has a very high transmission rate but a very low lethality. So we have a really difficult message for the public. There is a high risk of getting flu, and you know, 25-30% of the population will get it. Almost all of them will be absolutely fine. But our problem is trying to work out which are the ones who won't be. And it's not just those at risk groups, because throughout the world, the same statistic applies. One in five of the people who become critically ill or die are people with no underlying health conditions. Now, if only 10,000 people get flu, that's a tiny number. If 10 million get flu, that's a very large number. And that's where I think the public health message is extremely complicated. I think Liam's done a really good job on this, but it's actually quite difficult. But the one thing we fail to do is get people to change their behavior. You get onto any bit of public transport or even in a lift, people sneeze and they don't bother to use a handkerchief or sneeze into their sleeve as the Australians would tell you or whatever. So in actually one of the most important things here is that the basic messages are, you, there's a very good chance you're going to get flu. There's an equally very good chance you're gonna be absolutely fine with a few paracetamol. Um, there will be a small number of you who are ill and those who are not getting better quickly need to get advice because the earlier you intervene with those who aren't getting better, the better the outcome. But you can reduce the numbers of people you spread it to by sneezing into a handkerchief. Saved us all a trip to the GP surgery, hasn't it? You've got it straight from the horse's mouth here, what you have to do. Thank you very much, Dr. Vivian. Um, okay, some comments now. We've got 10 minutes left. And uh, if you could all um, identify yourselves, I will go to the very back, the gentleman there, because you have been waving very enthusiastically. Hi there. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's felt quite interesting, this. I, I'm James Serene. I'm the head of news at the Department of Health. So it's felt a bit like a performance appraisal. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, so my team have been responsible for all the press briefings, for accompanying Liam, for putting out the statements from day one. Um, one of the things I really want to ask the panel, and this has really been sort of our dilemma, and it, it goes to the heart of a lot of the issues around how you deal with crises in the media, is we've tried from the beginning to be as open as we possibly can and to provide a, a deluge of information to as many journalists as we possibly can and to people who will be out talking to journalists. Um, and we've taken a strategy where we will answer every media question, we will try and do every media interview we possibly can with the resources we have. But there are issues around basically sharing your inner monologue with the public. And you're basically saying, day to day, this is what's going on, this is our dilemma, this is the decision we need to make next week, this is what we don't know, this is what we do know. And there are risks with that, but I think that, I suppose my question for the panel is, you know, does that work? And, you know, in a sense, are some people on the panel saying you would have been better if you would have hidden some things? And I think the issue that really at the crux of it was this 100,000 figure that was in the planning assumptions, and I was part of that decision, that said, tell it, tell it today, it's going to get out. We were sending it to emergency planners. Are some people on the panel saying they would prefer that we would have just would have kept that secret? Because I don't think that's the case. All right, fine, thanks. They, they've answered it all. They've all said no. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, did you? Sorry, I didn't, you didn't move. Yeah, let, let's, let's see what else they have to say. Yes, okay. Um, okay, let's just go there because the microphone's there. Name and... My name is Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review, but I was the uh, head of press at the Royal College of Nursing during the 80s in the HIV uh, scare. 
And also, I was a, a young boy in Aberdeen, Shire, when uh, typhoid was there. And I remember running across the fields to look at the police roadblocks where they were turning back uh, lorries and being not actually arrested, but turned back by the police. And the realisation that public power, they were not only al not allowed into Aberdeen, but I wasn't allowed out, was a shock. And it's not really the debate between the scientists and some parts of the press that worries me so much. It's the point that was being made about some of the professionals and the nurses and some of the people out in society, whether it's the head teachers or the health and safety people, and what they might do and their reaction. I mean, it is a shocking figure that 40% of the professionals won't take the, um, uh, the, 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 the vaccines. Um, when we were dealing with um, HIV, and trying to explain it to the public at the Royal College of Nursing, we were suddenly hit in the back of the head by huge prejudice from within the nursing profession. I mean, absolutely shocking uh, behavior, um, refusing to treat patients, panic, all sorts of other things. So it seems to me that some of the danger in all this isn't entirely at the level of the debate that's being conducted in the media and between others. It's can we keep uh, reasonable behaviour amongst the professionals and others whose job it is to keep society going and we don't have the schools closed and panic. Finally, on a point of perspective, if these Australian numbers are right and the British numbers turn out to be three times the size and a thousand people die, that's still only about one in five or one in ten of the people who die in hospitals from infections, mistakes and all the other things that Liam Donaldson and others should be, and it's less than the 3,000 who die every year on the roads. So you need to remind people about what true risk is. All right. We haven't got a great deal of time, so do keep your comments to the point as much as you can, since the microphone is next to this gentleman here in the beige jacket. I'm John Carrier. I'm chair NHS Camden, and I was the vice chair of the Royal Free on the day of the press conference of the MMR debate. I find it interesting we're only about half a mile away from Broad Street and the famous Broad Street pump, and I suggest that everyone on the panel reads the biography of John Snow and others to get an epidemiological take on this. I just want to link one thing that Professor Openshaw said with uh, something that Simon Jenkins said and see what you think. In a throwaway line, Peter Openshaw said, I don't want to get technical here uh, about the confidence intervals. And I think actually that's the exact issue. Because if you don't get technical, and if journalists are not numerate as well as literate, then I think there's a major public misunderstanding about uncertainty, probability, the difference between causation and association, and public accountability. And I think good journalists and good scientific journalists understand those things, but the public don't understand probability. And I think the point that Vivian Nathanson said, the difference between the likelihood of occurrence and the likelihood of severity, goes to the heart of this, and that's where I think the misunderstanding comes. And I like Peter's or, or Simon's uh, view on this, because I, I think these, the, these uh, issues, these five issues of uncertainty, probability, causation, association, accountability, are key debates here. Otherwise, you'll get what Becker in the United States 40 years ago, ago called when discussing juvenile delinquency, the, ap the amplification of deviance. And the amplification here could be quite serious, and that, that, that's why you get these headlines. Okay. Okay. So thank you very much for that. Uh, just very quickly then, go down the panel. Um, one or two points raised there. The gentleman from the Ministry of Health, should Ministry of Health um, 
public um, uh, departments perhaps be a little bit more stingy with the information they give? How do you have key public sector workers, health workers, teachers, that kind of thing, better informed? And um, I think somebody asked about journalists needing to be um, better informed about the probability and the likelihood of occurrence and severity. So I'll just go quickly down our panel for their comments on those. David? Well, I think transparency is very important and it uh, allows for um, a, a more uh, reasonable um, amount of collaboration. There will always be some sensationalism, you know, but I think it's built into expectations and while it is irresponsible, uh, from my perspective, the fact is it, it does move things along. We're in a different uh, media society today. Information travels immediately, uh, and I think we need to, to uh, allow that transparency to happen because I, I believe that it ultimately leads to better collaboration, which is what we need to have. We could have it around a number of different diseases, but when something like this is happening and, and it's new and it has risk, I think it has to be looked at differently than, than TB. And just one quick question. Billions of dollars, you said, going into trying to find a vaccine for swine flu. We were all told October it's going to be ready. Is it going to be ready by October? Uh, the, I believe the first vaccines will be, start uh, be available end of September into October, and then it will roll out over the course of the next five or six months. It really depends on the productivity of the virus as it grows in the eggs and how quickly uh, we can gear up to make that. I mean, the, the world's capacity to make vaccines is probably limited at some 800 million doses. Uh, that's all we're, you know, so um, we can't make more than that. I don't know if we can make 800 million doses. It depends on the productivity of the seed of the virus. So uh, it's still, we're still not sure how much vaccine we're going to have. AstraZeneca making it, you've got it? We have, a, we are trying to make a vaccine at our MetaMune subsidiary. Yeah, it's not, it's not finished yet. I mean, this is my head of research and development reminds me that this is a scientific experiment, not a timeline. And uh, we, you know, it, it may, you know, it may or may not work the way we want it to work. So the, you all need to understand that. This, that was my point about what our industry does. We're at risk trying to advance technology. And I think the point you made about the bird flu and how this has all developed is a great example. We wouldn't be where we are today to make a swine flu vaccine and have it available had that not happened and science advanced as a result of it, even though it was a bit of a, a, t a tempest in a teapot. All right. Thanks, David. Paula, your response to some of the comments on the floor? Um, I think that um, to, the, to the gentleman from the NHS, I mean, I, th I don't think you should hold back, and I think your policy has been completely correct. I mean, in the end, the truth is that this virus, um, H1N1, could come back in a second wave, and, and it could be worse the second time round. So in some ways, you could argue that it's a good thing that the world has, has had a bit of a trial run, if you like, and, and we've been able to fine-tune quarantine policies, drug stockpiles, vaccines, etc. Um, and it, you know, if it's been a damp squib in the developing world, um, it, it, sorry, in the developed world, um, that's not much consolation for those that are living in nations of, of poverty and high density. And, and the truth is that we don't know what's going to happen there. So, it's okay. Catherine, um, I think this is all about proportion. And um, I think as uh, journalists, uh, there is no way I'm ever going to argue for anybody holding information back. Um, I would definitely argue for people to present the information as carefully as they can and as, in as much technical detail and uh, to treat us as capable of understanding these. Obviously, you know, there's that old joke about the headline, small earthquake, not many dead. And um, I think as journalists, we can resist... Uh, we can do our best to resist the um, 
uh, more um, fl florid sorts of headlines that get put on our pieces or the pressures from editors to pump things up, which are absolutely there. Um, but uh, I don't think that it means that you in any way stop reporting. Um, I think it's, it's about reporting with a sense of proportion, getting the risk, understanding what the real risks are and, and communicating them. Thank you. Peter? Well, I think there are, there are three um, outbreaks here. One is an outbreak of, um, of swine flu. And that's, uh, that certainly has happened. And actually has played out more or less as it was predicted in some of the, the reasonable um, scenarios. I think the second outbreak is um, information, unprecedented levels of information about what's going on here, not only scientifically, but also um, information to the public. And I think we've never had as, an if, as efficient um, a machine for finding out about the virus and for telling people about it, and that's quite a, an extraordinary novelty. And I think the third, I quite agree with, the, with the, my clinical colleague from um, UCL, uh, that th there's been a remarkable outbreak of public common sense. I think people read all the different stories, in, including you know, the excellent um, journalism by, uh, by Simon Jenkins and others, and they, they, they balance the different stories that they're receiving, and they're actually really sensible about it. And I think telling people the truth as you see it often diffuses their worst anxieties. I think on, on the point about you know, a vaccine and the enormous focus which has been given to, to flu rather than to the other major killers, I think there's no doubt that if we were given the choice, if we were given you know, a magic uh, ticket and we could only make a vaccine against TB, HIV um, or malaria or um, pandemic flu, we would forget um, pan the, this particular swine flu. Um, but the, the, fa the fact is um, that we can see ways of making a vaccine for swine flu. And at the moment, many great and worthy um, sci scientists have, have been struggling for years and have failed to have a, make a vaccine against TB, HIV or malaria, which are undoubtedly much, much more major global threats. And Simon, you started this discussion. You may end it. I was, I was asked to be controversial. I hope I earn my cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I'm pretty unrepentant, as you can imagine. Um, uh, I remember covering the foot and mouth outbreak um, when I have to say I developed a deep scepticism bordering on contempt for the, Royal, for the National Veterinary Service. Um, foot and mouth was a disease that affected um, a few cattle. Uh, it didn't even kill them, let alone kill people. Um, it devastated the rural economy of Britain in the interests of the beef exporting group of the what's called the Cattle Club. Um, the whole of British government was turned over to the interests of one particular industrial group, uh, and it was a disgrace. Uh, now, I view all these things with deep scepticism. I was always told, follow the money, and I follow the money even in issues like this. Now, we've had uh, um, a lot of talk about how lucky we've been and so on. Well, we've been lucky after the past four cries of wolf from the uh, government medical officers. Um, the, the fact is, they grossly exaggerate, and I do believe, yes, they have an interest in so doing, and that's not my, um, my personal cussedness. Um, uh, people who watch these things within government know what's going on. Um, people do have interests. Uh, there is an interest in uh, building up a huge head of steam behind buying vast quantities of Tamiflu and vaccine rather than doing something elementary that needs doing, like cleaning hospitals. No one gives a damn about cleaning hospitals, which kills far more people than these passing epidemics. 
Um, it really is a serious matter to get this into, into some sort of proportion. The press will never do it. Give up on us. We're hopeless. We are led by the nose by very clever people who have interests in leading us by the nose. And all I'm trying to do is to, is, is, is to be, is to, if, you, if you like, be as, um, as, uh, as, um, as open as possible in describing the leading by the nose. That's what's been happening. Thank you very much, Simon. So in answer to this question, though, you all came to hear, does the global media spread information or panic? Tell me if I'm wrong, but it, you all seem to be saying it can spread information quite responsibly, and it does do that sometimes. Sometimes it spreads panic by being a little bit sensationalist. Has it actually spread panic? Nobody's really given any evidence of people really panicking, um, actually. I think you've been saying that the public tend to um, read sensations headlines and then just take, go away with their own thoughts. Responding to overzealous statements by policymakers, Simon Jenkins says, has that um, helped generate panic? Again, not so clear, but I think um, we've helped clarify this um, question, I hope, a little bit um, for you. I hope you found it stimulating, enjoyable and informative. Thank you very much to BBC Global News and Editorial Intelligence for putting this on and also Policy Review TV who've been filming this and I understand it's going to be going out on the internet. And of course to all of you for making the time for coming here this morning. Thank you to all the panellists from me, Zain Abadawi, your host for this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you.